0: Welcome to CERWE Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy economics and a changing world in the COVID nineteen era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Hello, my name is Carlos Pascual and welcome to Sear Week Conversations presented by IHS Market. As part of these conversations, we've been recording conversations with leaders in energy, public policy, technology, and finance. And in some cases, we've had discussions that have been provocative, engaging in some of the leading topics of the world. I want to share with you today a conversation that we recorded with a live audience, a live video audience in New York. It was about energy, politics, and the clash of nations, and in particular, it focused on this triangle of intersection between China, the Middle East and American foreign policy, especially foreign policy related to energy. Three tremendous people speaking. Suzanne Maloney, vice president at the Brookings Institution and director of their foreign policy program. Evan Feigenbaum, vice president for studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And Roger Dewan, vice president for finance at IHS market. Watch with us this conversation and the depth that goes into on the challenges that are going to face the next president of the United States and some of the differences that are going to exist for Biden presidency versus a Trump presidency. Listen to this. Let's think about it. Issues related to trade, IPR, the Hong Kong security law. Taiwan and military exercises, the South China Sea, cyber conflicts, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Battle for Influence, TikTok, Huawei, and we can keep going on. And Evan, I'd really like to start with you. Given all of that, where do you begin? Do we need a new set of organizing principles for how we address foreign policy between the United States and China?
1: Sure. Well, Carlos, thanks. First, it's good to be with you, and I appreciate the chance to be with so many great colleagues. Um, the length of your list and the scope of it, I think, says something important about where we are in the U.S.-China relationship. I think if you look at where we've been over the last couple of years, the relationship is basically in free fall, and after 25 years in the business, I'm having trouble seeing the floor. So the core of it, I think, is if you, it's useful to contextualize it by rewinding to the inception of the U.S.-China relationship was really Richard Nixon's visit to Beijing in 1972. And if you think about that moment in time, the United States and China were fighting a proxy war in Vietnam. And China was still crawling its way out of the Cultural Revolution. So from the very inception of the relationship, the two countries had clashing security concepts and ideological and political differences. These were a feature They were not a bug of the relationship and they've always been with us. But I think what happened after an economic relationship began to develop on a large scale, particularly after China entered the WTO in 2001, is that exchanges of commercial flows, flows of goods, capital, people, technology and data began to integrate the two economies really on a separate track. And so to put that another way, economics and security were really proceeding along parallel and largely disconnected tracks. And if you talk to people in the markets or at corporates, they're always aware of the security tensions, things that you mentioned, things like Taiwan, the South China Sea. But they were either background noise or they were things that really didn't impinge on corporate strategy in very direct ways. But what's happened, I think, in the last few years is essentially that the U.S.-China relationship has been securitized. Or to put that another way, those flows of goods, capital, people, and technology are now being refracted by politicians, bureaucrats, and decision makers on both sides, largely through the prism of national security, not simply through purely commercial flows. The best way to look at that is to take out things like flows of people, flows of data, flows of technology. We used to think of flows of people, exchanges of students and scholars. It was largely an exchange, it was a public good. But what's happened is because many of the emerging and foundational technologies of the future, things like artificial intelligence enabled applications, new synthetic and composite materials, quantum computing, these things are intrinsically dual or multiple use. And so in a Washington context, even simple things like visas for Ph.D. students is seen as enabling the rise of a competitor because over the long term, it means a knowledge transfer in areas that, as I said, are intrinsically dual or multi use. The same thing is true on flows of data. Why is the president and many people in Congress on both sides of the aisle cheering for the executive orders the president issued recently on TikTok and on WeChat? It's because these are companies that touch Americans' personal data and flows of personal data to Chinese entities are no longer seen as a purely commercial thing. They're viewed through a national security prison. So I think, you know, to go to your point about what's been reset I think the core of it is where economics and security proceeded largely on parallel tracks. Uh, Economic integration is not only not mitigating security competition, it's getting worse from the Taiwan Strait to the South China Sea. But now security is bleeding back into economics in ways that will have extremely debilitating and pernicious effects on commercial flows. But really, to be frank about it, I think are going to be the dominant prism for decision makers and, yes, regulators in a whole variety of industries, particularly touching technology over the next five to 10 years. And that's really a bipartisan thing. It has enablers on both sides of the aisle. And even people who detest the president of the United States, President Donald J. Trump, are actually cheering for these elements of his policy. So that's really a paradigm shift. And that's that's something that
2: people in the markets and corporates really have to start to reckon with. We can't hear you, Carlos. Excuse me, I hit mute by accident. Um,
0: Evan, the intersection between the economics and the security issues are, are fascinating. And it underscores the structural nature of these issues. But if so much is structural, what can change under a Biden presidency?
3: Uh, It mutes again.
2: I think if you look at
1: Chinese behavior at this point, they're largely giving American policy what I would call the Biden discount, um, which is to say they're retaliating for American uh, decisions, things like visa sanctions on Chinese individuals or adding Chinese companies to the entity list, largely in like for like and proportional ways. Um, I think uh, how long that continues depends a lot on how much of a reset in the relationship takes place if one of the two countries is under new management next January. My own view, which is basically something you just articulated, is a lot of this is structural. It reflects the emergence of not just intensified security competition, but as I said, the securitization of commercial flows. So what will change, I think, is in the first instance, stylistic. I think the Biden people have an opportunity not just to pursue a stylistic change, but to do it in a way that I would describe as more systematic and institutionalize then the Trump approach. When I look at the current administration's approach to China, I just see a lot of stuff getting thrown at the wall on a daily basis. It's a running joke I have with my colleagues. We went from, you know, three sanctions levers being pulled a month to, you know, three three every two weeks, and now it feels like every day there's a set of measures. So I think the first thing is I would look to see some of those things be – what I would call more institutionalized, so a more systematic use of tools like export controls, uh, the export, uh, the entity list, uh, investment screening, where uh, these things will be done in a more systematic and, in my view, strategic way than I think what we're seeing out of the administration now. The second thing is because the climate change issue will be front and center for a democratic administration, particularly in the first six months, when I think my expectation is that the issues of healthcare, immigration and climate will be the dominant issues. Um, it's very hard to imagine an American reset on a climate issue that doesn't involve a reach out to Beijing. Um, and so that's an opportunity for the two governments both to define uh, a different kind of tone to the relationship, but also to put a floor, as I said, under some of the freefall. The third thing, which is something you hear from the Biden people a lot, is that there'll be more leveraging of alliances and partnerships. And there is the question of what that means beyond a talking point to wit. Um, if the next administration is serious about structural reform in China, the kinds of across and behind the border reforms and competition policy that have been important to American corporates for a long time to level the playing field, uh, one way to do that would be to work with Europeans and with Japanese to jointly withhold access to their markets in exchange for concessions in behind the border competition policies in China. But as part of a structured, affirmative negotiation towards something like even a quadrilateral investment treaty. I hesitate to say investment treaty because the American model bilateral investment treaty is a little different than the one Mm -hmm. the Europeans are negotiating with Beijing, for example. But I think the point is what you have there is a coalition of the aggrieved, but not necessarily a coalition for collective action. And what the next administration has an opportunity to do is to leverage that sense of grievance in Europe and in some other major Asian economies to really try to force compel and negotiate across and the behind the border changes. Competition policy is really what matters in China. I don't think that's what we've seen out of this administration. All these phase one agreements, they're largely purchase agreements. They're things that happen at the border. Um, and I think there's an opportunity that the next administration and some of its advisors, if it actually takes office after November 3rd and into next January, it's something I think they'll be debating. That would change. But broadly speaking, this downward trajectory, the securitization, that I don't think is going to change and people need to dig in for the long haul. The Chinese certainly
2: are. You did. Let me bring you in on the issue of climate
0: and energy, Roger. Um, the US over the past years has grown to be the number one uh, exporter, producer of, uh, of oil and gas. China is the number one importer of oil and gas throughout the world. One would have expected that that could have increased US leverage in its relationship with China. Has it? And how does one pick up on the energy agenda to influence the bilateral relationship more broadly?
3: Yeah, uh, if you can hear me. I think what we've seen here uh, is quite interesting because the emergence of China as a, I mean, the growth of China as a large importer at a time uh, when the US was growing as a large uh, exporter also is concurrent to COVID. So the COVID uh, showed the power of both. Uh, uh, of both sides, correct? So in a way, the world of oil was dependent on China as an importer this spring, and China came and saved the market by buying a lot of oil and creating a floor in a way at a time when the producers, where the U.S. acted as a producer in many ways, uh, trying to uh, uh, coordinate a supply cut with with Russia and uh, and Saudi Arabia. But more structurally, I think uh, uh, going back to Evan is the fact that the U.S. is securitizing all the relationship and the U.S. is such a player in oil uh, and gas that makes the energy security issue for China even more preeminent, correct? So now the U.S. also, put on the table the energy security issue of a large uh, oil importer, the largest oil importer. So I think when you're thinking forward in the Biden administration, it helped create bridges, but it doesn't change. Uh, I agree with Evan Heed here. The trajectory is you want to move that securitization to climate rather than to oil in a way, bring uh, if US energy policy is moving from energy dominance to climate cooperation, you want to force the cooperation of China so you will also use these instruments of power of the United States to force China uh, into a more uh, constrained uh, climate uh, uh, set of climate initiative going forward. So I think that pressure would remain but shift from the security of importing oil to forcing a faster, um, shift to, toward cleaner energy, which is in the long term in the interest of China. I mean, China has an interest to invest into the, these technologies, becoming the manufacturing hub of renewables and, and, and new clean tech and being able to, uh, uh to ride that dragon in, in, in the future. So I think here there is, Areas of cooperation and obviously of competition. Suzanne,
0: uh, I'll come back a little bit later to the issue of clean energy and climate change, but for a second, let's stick with the hydrocarbons agenda and the connection to the Middle East. China's the number one customer, massive joint ventures, Saudi Arabia, Emirates, other countries in China. Has that change the orientation of the Middle Eastern countries, especially the Gulf countries, toward China? Are they increasingly looking east? Um, What is the perception of China and its relationship to the Middle East from the perspective of the Middle East?
2: Thanks so much, Carlos, and I'm really glad to be part of this conversation. I think there has been a growing recognition for decades now among all the major energy producers of the Middle East, that markets increasingly are moving eastward and that the uh, orientation of their own economies needs to follow that. And so we've seen this take place really since the 1980s, and obviously it's been accelerated over the course of the past decade. What we've seen is that there is a growing recognition that as the United States role in the region has retracted, that there is more opportunity for reinforcing what has primarily been an economic relationship limited to uh, Middle Eastern countries providing energy supplies to China and occasionally uh, importing weapons and other limited arrays of goods from the region to something that is far more extensive and I think far more sophisticated on both sides. And that economic relationship is now underpinned by a burgeoning diplomatic and strategic relationship. I don't want to overstate that. I don't think that There's a country in the region that is looking toward Beijing for provision of security assurances. And they recognize that, in effect, that one of the the benefits of this relationship is the fact that Beijing is disinterested in the internal politics, has no real intention of engaging in pressure over human rights or other types of issues that have occasionally caused friction between the United States and its partners and allies in the region. But that the Chinese are an incredibly important stakeholder in the region and will continue to be an increasingly important one as the United States recedes in terms of its own security relationships.
0: Evan, just to wrap up on the China piece, um, I'm going to ask you a a question that deserves a long answer. Give me a short answer. Given everything that we've discussed about China, is China a dominant force in Asia?
1: Yeah, I think the, the problem the United States, which is the other major power in Asia, has in trying to compete with China is that it's fighting the map and it's fighting economic gravity. It's fighting the map because if you just visualize the map of Asia in your head, China is geographically conti- contiguous to every subregion of Asia, Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Central Asia. So if you think about the levers of power, something like infrastructure, you mentioned the Belt and Road. You can build a highway from Tajikistan to western China. You cannot build a bridge from Kyrgyzstan to California. So China able to lever the map because it's both a demand driver for neighboring economies and a provider of capital, infrastructure, uh, and a model of project finance that the United States simply can't map. So they got the map in their favor. And second, they got economic gravity. And I really would stress this. You know, American leadership in Asia was premised on two pillars. It was the principal provider of both security-related public goods, alliances or deployed military presence, carrier battle groups. It kept the peace, but also economic public goods and other benefits. It was the demand driver for which Asia's export-led economies power their way to prosperity. And it was the standard setter, trade rules, investment rules, technical standards, and so on. And if you look at the security pillar, there's no basis for collective security in the Pacific. So the United States will continue to be an important security provider. But in the economic realm, which is really the coin of power in Asia, the United States demand profile is shrinking compared to the last decade, the 1990s, the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, which makes that standard setting role that much more important. But What is the United States doing? It's withdrawing from the agreements like the TPP that set trade and investment standards. It's withdrawing from international multilateral organizations in the region, and it's a allowing China on engineering standards to combine its sheer market weight with an export role to export its indigenous engineering standards and make them default regional and global standards. So where I see the future is the United States as the major security player, but fading in the economic realm, fighting the map, fighting economic gravity, and from my vantage point, not being adaptive or innovative enough in trying to leverage its standard setting role. So I think that's the trajectory that we're on, and China's got that in its favor. It's not 10,000 feet tall, but it's getting taller every day, particularly in its region.
0: Geography matters. Um, And let's move to a different piece of geography um, on on the Middle East. And Suzanne, if we could focus on Iran first. Um, Since 2018, when the Trump administration imposed its Uh, maximum pressure sanctions after withdrawing from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action said that it would pressure Iran into negotiating a new nuclear agreement. And we're at a point now where we we don't have a nuclear agreement. There have been some significant actions that have occurred, uh, notably um, the killing of Qasem Soleimani, um, the head of the Qud Force of Iran, um, there's an oil blood today, uh, as opposed to before, and as a result of that, low prices. Um, and some of the restrictions that are in the nuclear agreement are going to expire. So again, another complicated set of issues. You've used maximum leverage already. You haven't gotten what you wanted. How do you approach the beginnings of a dialogue in this kind of situation?
2: Yes, this is, I think, the, the kind of uh, signal issue in the Middle East for either administration. For President Trump, um, the desire to pull away from the Iran nuclear deal was a way of differentiating, differentiating himself from the Obama administration and effectively undoing one of the most important diplomatic accomplishments of his predecessor. I think if, in fact, we see a Biden administration come into office in January, finding a way to patch over our departure from the deal, either by rejoining the agreement or by creating a new diplomatic mechanism that at least enables the two sides to begin talking about long-term non-proliferation measures to address Iran's nuclear ambitions while enabling Iran access to the international economy will be a very high priority for that administration. Um, and so in many respects, the outcome of the November election is really crucial for the future of Iran, for the future of relationships all across the region. And that's why you see the Biden administration signaling so clearly that this is a high priority. But it goes well be- beyond Iran itself. Um, Iran, in many ways, is emblematic of the Trump administration's disdain for traditional allies or its unwillingness to abide by its agreements under international law. And so like the Paris Accords, the JCPOA has become a symbol for many Americans, even if they've never read the very lengthy and, uh, and complicated agreement. They understand that this is effectively a measure of seriousness in terms of the American administration's efforts to try to drive a peaceful outcome to an urgent security challenge. And I think, again, this is why we'll see a Biden administration move quickly to try to find some kind of diplomatic mechanism with Iran. If, of course, we see a second term of the Trump administration, uh, the president has, has suggested that he believes the Iranians are very ready to come to the table. I think, in fact, that's probably not the case. This is an Iranian leadership that has effectively restrained itself since January, since the U.S. assassination of its most prominent and and influential uh, commander of its security forces. And I think if we see a a second term of a Trump administration, we're likely to see the Iranians take the gloves off. They've been relatively restrained in terms of their retaliation over recent months. But I think all, all bets are off if, in fact, we see a second term of the Trump administration
0: if you can comment on two points. Uh, Yesterday in a Joe Biden op-ed, he talked about uh, Iran potentially being within months again of producing a nuclear weapon. Um, Do we have information on that and how does that affect the dynamic? And then secondly, the regional issues, uh, terrorist threats, the intervention, issues outside of the JCPOA, can you address those? Can those be addressed in the context of a nuclear agreement?
2: Sure. Well, Iran's proximity to nuclear weapons capability is an issue that's been debated and discussed for a couple of decades now. And there are new statements coming out of Trump administration officials that suggest the Iranians are closer now than ever. There are many who give those statements some skepticism, thinking that it's presuming that it's somehow part of the administration's maximum pressure strategy on Iran. But of course, it's hard to be expected that Iran is now less than a year away and probably many months less than a year away from nuclear weapons, nuclear capability, um, precisely because after the Trump administration walked away from its obligations under the deal, Iranians began to do the same. They, of course, waited. They waited as long as a year, continuing to abide by the agreement. And when the Trump administration tried to push their oil exports down to zero, beginning in May of 2019, the Iranians began to take their own measures, measures across the region to retaliate systematically and pointedly against U.S. interests and allies, but also measures to begin to re- retract their own compliance with the nuclear deal. So they have expanded their, uh, their stockpile of low-enriched uranium beyond the limits of the deal. They have begun to enrich to higher levels, which was prohibited under the deal. They have begun to reconstitute some of their activities at the Iraq heavy water plutonium plant and in a number of other areas, they are no longer compliant with their own obligations under the nuclear deal. This is the most complicated part of the challenge for the next administration, because what the Biden people have said is that they would go back to the deal, provided Iran does its part. The Iranians are saying the United States must move first. And in fact, not just that, but Foreign Minister Zarif in a in a briefing yesterday suggested that in fact, the United States should compensate Iran, for the hundreds of billions of dollars, not simply in lost oil revenues, but in fact, of deferred and, and, and uh, deferred growth and the economic opportunities that would have been available were it not for the, the U.S. decision to walk away from the deal. In terms of Iran's regional activities, I think we see a certain degree of consistency there, And, and here is where I think uh, both a Biden or a Trump administration will need to be very humble. Effectively, Iran has been able to enhance its influence across the region, both at times of maximum pressure by the Trump administration and at times of maximum diplomacy by the Obama administration. We have not found a a very useful mechanism for preventing the Iranians from accessing uh, local actors in various Arab countries, including those with which we have very close relationships, and using those relationships to sow instability and to expand their own foothold across the Arab world. And so I think we have to be very realistic about what is going to be possible under either a Trump or a Biden presidency. And one of the elements of the Trump strategy that the Biden administration, any Biden administration would have to take seriously is the recognition that pushback actually has some impact that what we've seen is that the Iranians have been restrained, concerned about further attacks by uh, a Trump administration, and that, in fact, in some cases, sabotage, as we may have seen over the course of the summer against an Iranian nuclear facility, may also be a successful uh, mechanism for trying to preclude Iran's most dangerous impulses.
0: Evan, given China's dependence on the Middle East and on Iran for its sources of energy. Surely they must care about the deterioration of the security and stability situation in the Middle East. Does that give them an incentive to get engaged? Do they have, can they be a, a useful and constructive player here?
1: I think that's a longer term proposition for them. And I think they're very, they've been very reluctant to step into that breach directly. And I think that's not surprising if you look at just their general The general zeitgeist of Chinese foreign policy. I mean, the four things that have always struck me about China in that region are first that they've maintained relatively productive relations with all the major poles of power in the region. They have a relative productive relationship with Iran, with Saudi Arabia, with the Emirates, with Israel, with the Turks. And there are not many that can pull that off. And they do that not because they're viewed, I think, as neutral. They're not, but rather because they're viewed as self-interested. And when they're viewed as self-interested, other self-interested powers know what they're dealing with. uh, And you can kind of gauge your relationship and what you want to get out of it and what they want to get out of it. Now, that cuts both ways, I think, at least as I've traveled around the Middle East, what I've heard is because the Chinese are self-interested, people do uh, have some suspicions of their motives, uh, particularly their economic motives. And they're viewed as uh, pursuing their own interests interest, including the search for yield in some of the projects that they're pursuing in ways that may or may not be in the interest of the countries over the longer term. Um, but the first thing is because they've been able to play that balancing act and be viewed largely as a country that puts – self-interest and economic and commercial things in the lead, uh, that's given them opportunities that the United States, for example, has has not. Um, the second thing which Roger can speak to better than I, but Suzanne already spoke to, is the demand profile. Um, I think, you know, China contracted 6.8 percent in the first quarter. Uh, they're now back to growth. That long-term demand profile obviously will matter a lot, particularly on the hydrocarbons relationships. But the third thing is that's not the end of the story anymore. It's not just about being a demand driver for Middle Eastern hydrocarbons. And I think that's what's been most striking to me is the way that there is both demand-side pull uh, and Chinese push into the region as a capital provider, as in an investor – in a much greater variety of sectors and industries, whether it's smart cities in Egypt, or it's ICT infrastructure in Algeria, or it's, you know, doing co-finance funds with Adia or Mubadala. It's just a very different setup than we had when I got in this field, much less even five or six years ago. And I think that diversifies the relationship, but again, it has both push and pull sides to it and I think it, it it gives China a different set of cards and and tools to play that will be attractive you know for instance um, I think there are uh, there are folks that look at Chinese investment in Africa as a as an opportunity for the Middle East to be kind of a uh, 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 an an intermediate region uh, to help through co-finance arrangements that pool Gulf capital with Chinese capital for investments that that yield return in Africa and elsewhere. And the same is true the other way. I mean, you see interesting trends in which there's Chinese uh, opportunities that have pulled in Gulf capital uh, as some of these funds in the Middle East look for yield themselves. So what I would say is, That political and strategic role to me is something that logically and intuitively should follow from the set of tools that China increasingly has built out in the region, uh, particularly the diversification of its economic partnerships. But I look at that on a longer time horizon, and I think China's rather reluctant and self-interested view of its foreign policy goals uh, probably will constrain that. You're not going to see China
0: stepping up and, you know, uh, in, a, in a peace process, for example, at least not in the short term. Richard, let's play some of these issues out on the energy side um, and let's let's start with oil. Uh, oil glut um, on the market, huge inventories, historic in levels. Saudi Arabia, Emirates, Russia, presumably have no interest in seeing additional oil coming onto the market. What does that do to the way that they see their incentives related to these issues on Iran?
3: Well, I I think when you take the the, the Gulf countries in particular, uh, the security issues uh, probably are more important than the short-term potential return of uh, of Iran. So a shift in U.S. foreign policy, uh, bringing back the gcpoa without any regional understanding of the iran role in uh, in, in yemen and uh, iraq lebanon syria bahrain etc i think for them is a bigger issue than seeing just 2 million barrel per day of iranian oil coming in it adds to the problem that we have here which is we already have 8 million barrel per day of spare capacity in the in the world not counting iran uh, if you add those 10 million so it you know, it pushes another year, maybe uh, longer, the, the COVID structural recovery in oil market that you would expect. So it delays the return of a, a little bit of a higher price than we are right now. Uh, but I think it also uh, provides a much uh, different security environment to them and how they manage their relationship with the U.S. into a Biden administration versus a Trump administration.
0: So one of the things that we do know about the energy world, given all of the uncertainties that we, we have, is that there is a transition underway in the energy sector. So if there is a Biden presidency, how does that energy transition significantly change in their outlook to the way that a Biden presidency might see foreign policy?
3: Well, I think when you when you take the 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 biden team's view of energy and what it can do in terms of foreign policy is quite important if we have a biden administration we'll have a very hard pivot on energy and particularly on foreign policy and energy this is a near uh, an area where they can actually have an impact uh i mean we will move from, as I said, this whole notion of uh, energy security, energy dominance that we had uh, under uh, Trump in the last uh, uh, three, four years here to really back to energy security, but energy security viewed through the prism of climate, correct? So you'll have a hard uh, pivot in terms of uh, uh, the concept of energy security. And it does two things, correct? It help uh, the US foreign policy rejoin, if you want, uh the consensus on climate, and you'll see a much broader convergence on set of issues with European allies, with your allies in general or your f- previous allies. So it helped uh, uh, bring back uh, a set of multilateral initiatives where the US could be actually uh, in the lead and bring back a coalition together, but also obviously it has domestic issues where it allow to uh, to keep a domestic coalition together, which is not easy to do around climate and energy uh, in the U.S. context. But on the foreign policy, it does a lot of uh, interesting things, correct? So it impacts, uh, okay, you come back into the Paris Agreement, but actually Biden's talking a lot more than, than that, uh, wants to put uh, more uh, structure around that for countries to abide by uh, by their promises and potentially setting up clashes with countries who do not through border tax adjustment, et cetera, et cetera. But importantly, I think that convergence on foreign policy that you can have uh, uh, with Europe, both in terms of climate, but also on the Middle East, on China, really matters. It's a Christmas tree where you can hang a lot of initiatives. it also help on your potential Middle East policy by putting some pressure on your allies to come into your broader agenda, correct? So how you think about climate policy uh, with the GCC countries, how do you think about investment in uh, carbon capture, what role the large producer will have to do to bring capital to that part of the decarbonization agenda correct? Uh, versus Uh, what we're seeing on the renewable side that seems to be advancing much faster in Europe, in China. Um, so it, it changes that, uh, the way you're going to have to think about Iran policy, uh, also, I think will have an impact on how you think uh, about climate because it reduces the price of oil and what, what does it do to that transition and how uh, it evolves? So that hard pivot in foreign policy will be very noticeable from the get-go, and you can almost uh, see that happening on day one. Correct? We go go back into the Paris Agreement, and we start renegotiating gcpoA um, We
0: we only have about seven minutes left, so let's try to bring some of these themes together. Um, and and then if you look at this issue from a broader Asia perspective, what are some of the critical questions that you think need to be resolved in order to be able to be effective in driving forward a foreign policy agenda? What, what needs to change in the way that we think about diplomacy in order to be effective?
1: Well, I, I, I think there are really three issues for the United States. One is obviously strategic competition with China is now the coin of the realm, but if the United States is not going to just whine, but is actually going to compete, then it needs to invest in its competitive strengths. Um, that means the strengths at home, but it also means, as I said earlier, an answer to one of your questions, the things that made it a pillar of regional order in Asia. And what I worry about is because China and Japan have not had a French-German moment, there is no basis for collective security in the Pacific, which means the United States was, is, and as far as my eyes can see, going to continue to be a major security provider directly or indirectly for everybody, but who China. But as I said to you earlier, the economic pillars of American leadership are underinvested and the United States is not sufficiently adapted. So the first thing is the United States has to reinvest in those. That may not mean coming back to major trade agreements. I'm not sure the U.S. will ever do another multilateral trade agreement because the politics are not there on either side. But at minimum, the United States needs to rediscover its role as a standard setting nation. And I think we've lost sight of that. And that matters in Asia. The second thing I'd say is the United States needs to stop making its Asia policy a derivative function of its China policy. You know, one of our former bosses, Rich Armitage, was famous for saying, and former Deputy Secretary of State, he used to say, if you want to get China right, you got to get Asia right. And Rich meant a lot by that. But one thing I'm pretty sure he did not mean was make all of your relationships in Asia derivative of your approach to China. And that's essentially what's happened. Now, it's intuitive that because the United States and China are the two strongest powers in Asia Many people think the future is one or the others to win, and you'll either get a U.S.-centric Asia or a China-centric Asia. But the reality is Asia is heading for something more like fragmentation because you have a lot of sizable, capable, self-interested powers, countries like Japan, like India, like Indonesia, that uh, are not content to be stuck in a box of either American or Chinese making. And so what you're heading for is a region where countries are tacking betwixt and between, where you have discombobulated rules and norms, and on trade, on data governance, on a whole variety of things, you'll have a variety of countries setting rules, and that's the future I see in the region. The US is not adapted to that.
0: Suzanne, on the Middle East, um, a Biden presidency will likely try to bring values into negotiating uh, or driving a foreign policy. And yet certain values, particularly linking back to a democratic, democratic agenda, have not always been popular in the Middle East. Is there a prospect of incorporating values into the way that you kind of conduct foreign policy in the Middle East and be successful?
2: Well, I think that this is going to be a big um, indicator of what a Biden administration broader foreign policy will look like. And and on that, I would say watch Saudi Arabia. The former vice president has been uh, notably uh, tough on Saudi Arabia over the years in his rhetoric. And obviously, there is a lot of pressure from Congress and from public opinion in the wake of the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi to adopt a a tougher position overall. And so I think, you know, we're going to, that will really be a signal of where the Biden administration is going. The broader question I think for either administration is how do you rethink an American foreign policy in the Middle East? that does not require massive commitments of American military personnel and material to the region. We are speaking today on the 40th anniversary of the Iraqi invasion of Iran. A war that lasted for eight years had greater casualties than almost any other conflict in the 20th century and really was the starting point for an American entanglement in security provision for the region in a very physical and tangible way. We have to reshape our relationship under either a Biden or a Trump administration to be consistent with the wishes of the American people, to extract ourselves from forever wars, but also to provide in a, in a more sustainable way for a more peaceful and prosperous Middle East. Uh, the presence of hundreds of thousands of American troops hasn't, in fact, accomplished that. And as a country, we can do better.
0: So, Jay, if we bring these points back to the energy sector, one of the things that comes out of the discussion is the importance of being realistic about addressing the the needs and the perceptions of those who are on the other side of the agenda. Where are they coming from? How do you address where their insecurities and their, their uncertainties are? And can energy play a role in effectively driving American foreign policy in a more effective way to open conversations? We've talked a little bit about climate, but the other piece of the agenda is how does energy play a role driven at American energy policy, how, do, how can it play a role in potentially changing some of the dynamics of insecurity and uncertainty that exists in these multiple relationships?
3: Well, I mean, the US has advantages, correct? It's not uh, only energy rich, but it's also R&D rich and it's capital rich. So in if you want to think about a new agenda that tying all of these things, and bringing the U.S. strengths in it, uh, that's one way to go about it, correct? So the, the administration has the ability, especially into a post-COVID where uh, fiscal stimulus is something that's uh, going to continue to be talked about by putting energy in the middle of ag- agenda to suddenly start tying things together. Uh, how do you compete with China? You're not going to compete on manufacturing. You're going to compete on R&D. You're going to be competing about the ability to bring capital into this new segment of the energy industry writ large and being able to move the agenda. It's the ability to have a dialogue with both the GCC country and Europe about decarbonization, where uh, you have both winners, if you want, not only winners and losers. So I think the US has that capability if it puts its mind to it and try to tie things up. Uh, in general, I mean, uh, managing these multiple uh, foreign policy and tie them together has not been the strength of this administration or even maybe the previous one, but this is the type of challenges here that the U.S. will face in the next phase.
0: This has been a fascinating discussion, one that we can take on for a long period of time, and I have to thank all three of you for the insights that you've shared. One of the things that strikes me right now is that we're on a, there's a negative dynamic There's a deterioration of relations and and many of those factors in the Middle East and in China are structural. And unless there is a way to break with the past and to address some of those fundamental structural issues, it's hard to see how change will come. And to do that, there needs to be certainly a diplomatic agenda, but that diplomatic agenda needs to be leveraged with influence, with power, with economic um, incentives. And so a challenge on the China relationship, on the Middle East relationship, will be how to bring those together to be able to more effectively advance what American foreign policy. For the complete video series and previous episodes,
2: visit us online at SarahWeek.com.